Hey, it's good to see you guys. I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, Brad was talking about uh, his children, and uh, as any parent would be, uh, he's uh, very proud of them, and he should be. Uh, he uh, came into the office one day this week, and uh, his lovely wife had sent him a video message, and so he was showing all of us. And the video message was of his daughter Annabelle singing her ABCs, and she does extremely well. Mom's done a good job of uh, teaching her. You know, as parents, isn't it fun to watch our children as they grow and develop? And uh, I think with, as parents, we anticipate that moment when they'll utter their first words. And uh, to the delight of a lot of us as parents, the first words they often say are things like dada, mama. Now, I, I hate to tell you, but I'm pretty convinced at this point when they first start saying those, they don't really know that they're crying for daddy or mommy. They're just saying words, but, you know... It does still feel good, doesn't it? I know Matt, his leading worship, his son Levi was sitting down here last week while we were setting up, and he was saying over and over again, "Dada, dada," and uh, it's pretty cool. You know, another word that they learn pretty quickly around that same time, though, is the word "no." Yeah, and you know, they start saying that to us as parents. We tell them to do something, and "no" is their response. Well, let me just tell you, parents, I, I, you'll be glad to know this. Uh, psychologists tell us, I read this week, that that's actually a healthy thing. Because according to these very intelligent psychologists, our children are learning to individuate and learning how to have boundaries. And I say, yeah, right. Those psychologists have obviously never had small children of their own who were constantly telling you no. Brad also alluded to another word that they uh, seem to learn around the same time, and that word is, what did he say? Mine, yeah. My toys, my clothes, my stuff, mine, mine, mine. But here's the problem with that word. We keep using it for the rest of our lives. Mine, mine, mine. We use it. It's written across our wallet. It's written across our to-do list, our checkbook, our electronic calendars. Mine, mine, mine. Well, last week we began a journey where we're exploring how to live a life and to have an attitude that is the opposite of mine, mine, mine. An attitude and a life of generosity. We've called this the generosity journey. And I challenged you last week to participate in this series in four ways. Let me just quickly review those in case you missed that last week. Number one, I uh, encourage you to be here every week during the series as we explore how to live a generous lifestyle. For those of you that are back again, that's good to see you again. And those who happened to miss last week for some reason, hey, you can jump in beginning now and be part of this for the rest of the month. Secondly, I encourage you to stop out at the connection point and to pick up one of these things called a 40-day guide to a more generous life. And it's got some uh, daily devotions that you can uh, follow along with every day and some articles that you can read that will help you in living a more generous life. And so these are for sale out there. They're just $5. And honestly, if that's more than you can afford, we understand that just pay what you can or take one as our gift. We just really want you to have one of these. And there's still plenty of those left. So stop out there today. The third way was to participate in some of the things that we're going to do this month to give you the opportunity to uh, be generous hands-on. And we uh, mentioned last week we're collecting some things for the uh, uh, pediatric oncology unit at Health Park, and uh, hopefully you brought in some of those things. We have a chance to do that again next week. And Brad's going to tell you in a little bit about another thing that we're going to do as we move towards Christmas. And the next week we've got a whole plethora of ideas of things that we're going to share with you about ways that you can practice generosity. The fourth way to participate is to share your stories with us. As you have an opportunity to see God working in your life, 
send us those stories about uh, your generosity. You can send those to, to email them at uh, stories at crosspointcape.com. Uh, stories at crosspointcape.com. We'd love to hear what God is doing. Well, today, uh, remember we said last week that our roadmap for this journey towards generosity is a few verses of the Bible found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me just quickly read those again uh, just as a review and a reminder of what Paul says here about generosity. Verse 17, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. And we reminded you last week that those who are rich in this world, that would apply probably to all of us, even though we look around and think, well, I'm not that rich. Not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope or their trust in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life, or to take hold of real life. Paul suggests there are three key ingredients to living a more generous life. And they are to trust God, to do good, and to be generous. Today I want to tackle the third of those issues and talk about how we can live a life of extreme generosity that can help us overcome the mindset of mine, mine, mine. To do that, I want to look at a story from the life of King David found in 1 Samuel chapter 30. So if you brought your Bible today, and I hope that you did, uh, take it out right now and open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 30. The book of Samuel is about a third of the way into the Old Testament part of your Bible. It comes after books like Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and uh, right before you get to books like 1 and 2 Kings. Now while you're looking for that, let me kind of give you just a little bit of background. This story actually takes place before David becomes king of Israel. In fact, the current king, King Saul, and David are kind of at odds with each other. And David has actually been fleeing from Saul for his life. And he's kind of put together this band of men who are traveling around with him and uh, they've fought some battles together. And this band of kind of bunch of misfits has um, created a little community in a town called Ziklag. And there their families live, their, their wives and children and all of their stuff. So David and his men, right as the story is about to begin, have been out on one of those journeys, one of those missions. And uh, the mission ends and they are making their way home as the story begins in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. Here's what happens. David and his men reached Ziklag, their hometown, on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken the captive, the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. Can you imagine going away out of town somewhere, coming home to find that your possessions had been stolen, your home had been burned, and your wife and children taken hostage? They are absolutely overwhelmed by their grief. David and their David's men are actually angry with David. They start blaming him. David, it's your fault. If we wouldn't have been out of town with you, this wouldn't have happened. They, they threaten to stone him. 
So David goes to God and he said, God, what do I do? Do I go after the Amalekites? And God says, yes, I want you to pursue them. And if you pursue them, I'll give you victory. So David gets all 600 of his men together and he says, let's go after the Amalekites. And so they take off. They come to this ravine though. And there, because these guys, I guess, have been traveling so long and it's been so difficult and because of their the turmoil, 200 of the guys say, we are just too tired. We don't have the energy to even cross this ravine. So David says, that's fine. You guys stay right here. And the other 400 head on across the ravine. Well, as they're on their journey, they come upon this lowly Egyptian slave who has not eaten and has been sick. And David and his men have compassion for him. And they're generous with him. They give him some food to eat, some water to drink. And they ask him a question. And they say to this slave, who, who's master? Who was your master? Who abandoned you here? And the Egyptian slave says, it was the Amalekites. And David says, do you think you could show us where, where they've gone? Amalekite, of course, says on one condition, as long as you promise that you're not going to hand me over to them because I know they will kill me. David says, agreed. And he leads them towards the Amalekites and they come upon them evidently in some valley. The Bible says they were sprawled across the countryside. Basically, they were eating, drinking, and being merry because of the huge victory they thought they had won. And David and his men attack. They kill the Amalekites except for 400 men who somehow managed to escape. They retreat, get their wives and children. There's a great reunion that takes place. They get their possessions back and they take all of the possessions of the Amalekites. They plunder them. It's a huge victory. So after this great victory, they head back and they meet up again with the 200 guys. And the 400 guys that have been in battle said, you know what, guys, the ones that stayed behind, you can have your wives and children back, but that's it. We're keeping all the rest of the stuff. We're the ones that fought the battle. And David says, no, 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 no. That's not the way it's going to be. In fact, he says, you, you give them their wives and their children and you share with them all of the possessions that we have plundered from the Amalekites. They return home and David is so excited by what has happened and experienced the joy of what's happened, he decides he is going to send some of what he has plundered from the Amalekites off to some of his friends in other places to share his generosity with them. Now, there are several lessons, I think, in this story that can inspire generosity in our lives. First, generosity begins with humility. Generosity begins with humility. There are two verses I want you to notice in this story. Look at verse 6, first of all. It says that David was greatly distressed. And this is right after they have come back and discovered that their community has been destroyed. He was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But then notice what it says. But David found strength in the Lord his God. He found his strength in this very difficult moment in God. Then jump over to verse 23. And this is after they have plundered the Amalekites and the reunion has happened. Listen to what happens in verse 23. They've met up with the 200 guys and there's already been this discussion about we're, not, we're only giving you your wives and children. And David says this. David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and handed, us, handed over to us the forces that came against us. Now get the picture here. David and his men have just won a huge victory. 
there's been this dramatic rescue of their wives and children. They have plundered the Amalekites. And, you know, you could have imagined David saying, looking around at all this and saying, wow, <laughs> look at what we've done. Look at what I've done. Look at all this stuff. It's mine. But that's not what he does. In fact, David, as he looks around at all this plunder and all that they've accomplished, he doesn't take the credit. He doesn't say, well, look at what I've done. He says, look at what God has done. In fact, David says to his men, we can't take the credit for all this. He says in verse 23, did you catch this? But David said, no, my brothers, don't be selfish with what we accomplished by our own strength. That's not what it says, is it? No, it says, don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. You want to underline a word? Underline that word, Lord. Circle it. Highlight it. Because that's the key right here. He gives credit to God. He says it's because God kept us safe. Because God helped us defeat the enemy. David says, we've got to give credit to God. You know, it's as if he was saying to all the guys around him, guys, I know we've got all this stuff, but I want you to remember, there was a time not long ago when we were just a bunch of wandering indebted fugitives who had nothing. And now we have all of this stuff only because of the generosity and the graciousness of God. How can we not be generous and gracious towards others? David says all these blessings are, a, are because of God-sized generosity. And now it's our turn, guys. It's our turn to show God-sized generosity to others. David, somewhere along the way in his life, writes the words of Psalm 103. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 103. He says, Praise the Lord, I tell myself, and never forget the good things He does for me. And then he makes a list. He makes a list of some of the good things that God has done for him. He says, He forgives all of my sins and heals all of my diseases. He ransoms me from death and surrounds me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. That's David's list. What would your list have on it? Could I challenge you today to go home and sit down and make a list of all of the good things that God has done for you and then express your gratitude and then realize that based on the goodness and the graciousness of God, how could we be any other way but to be gracious and generous towards other people around us. We have all experienced God-sized generosity in our lives. It's our turn now to show God-sized generosity to other people. Here's the second lesson that I notice in this story. Generosity does not depend on my circumstances. Generosity does not depend on my circumstances. Look at verse 11 in this story. This is as they're making their journey. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, a part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. Now, you know what? David's men, they were experiencing a time in their life of utter desperation and defeat. Their wives and children had been taken hostage. They had lost all of their possessions. They probably were thinking, it can't get much worse than this. Life was miserable. And then they happen along this 
lowly Egyptian slave. And you know what? He was nobody important. Who would have blamed David's men if they would have thought to themselves, we don't have time for this. Life is too difficult. This is not the time for us to try to help somebody else. This is not the time for us to be generous towards somebody else that's struggling. Who could have blamed them given the circumstances of their life? And yet, David and his men, despite their circumstances, despite their current conditions, responded with generosity towards someone else. Our generosity towards others does not depend on what we have or don't have. There's a church that's written about in the New Testament. It's probably one of my favorite churches because all of the reasons that you read about it in the New Testament are not the things that we would naturally think would cause them to be included in the Bible. I, uh, in fact, I, I receive, uh, I subscribe to this magazine called Outreach. I get it about every other month. And in the, the edition that came a couple of months ago, it lists the 100 biggest and fastest growing churches in America. And it tells all about their great facilities and their big staffs and their big... Uh, financial plans and all their wonderful programming. A lot of great stuff. But you know what? The things that made the Macedonian church that got it into the Bible would never get that church into this magazine. Do you know what the Macedonian church was known for? Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 in the Bible. It says, Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. You know what got the Macedonian church into the Bible? Why Paul writes about them? Their generosity. They were known for being generous despite their circumstances because it says there that they were dealing with most severe trial. And those words for severe trial in the original language are the idea of something that is crushing or pressing down on you. That was, that was their life. And it says out of their extreme poverty, and that's the, a picture there of somebody who's hit rock bottom. Somebody who is cringing like a beggar. And Paul says out of this severe trial, out of this deep poverty that they're living in, welled up rich generosity. Generosity does not depend on our circumstances. Our ability to be generous with others isn't dependent on what we have or don't have. Generosity is a matter of the heart. I've talked a lot about traveling uh, to Bulgaria a couple summers ago was a profound experience. And I was thinking again as I was writing this about the generosity of the gypsies in the village where we stayed. They live in what we would call very substandard housing. Most of us would not live in the homes that they live in. They have just a couple sets of clothing apiece. Food is not abundant for them. They don't have lots to send their kids off to school with. It's very difficult life. But out of that deep poverty and what we would call probably some severe trials of life wells up in them this incredible generosity that I've experienced every time I've been there. They give and give and give. It's incredible. And they model the fact that our generosity doesn't depend on our circumstances. That we can be generous in spite of our circumstances. We have been blessed abundantly by God in so many ways. And out of that ought to come generosity. Here's another lesson that I see in this story. Generosity doesn't always seem fair. 
generosity doesn't always seem fair. Listen again to verse 22. This is when they meet up with the 200 guys that didn't go to battle. It says, but all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers, it would be a great way to be described, wouldn't it? They said this, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. And you know what? On face value, that sounds fair, doesn't it? I mean, 400 of the guys went and fought in the battle. They risked their lives. Why should they share the plunder with the people who didn't even go? And on face value, from a a human perspective, we'd look at that and go, that makes perfect sense. That's fair. But you know what? Generosity isn't always about what seems fair to us. And David says, no, that's not the way it's going to be. We're going to share with them. If you're a sports fan, a big sports fan, you would understand this. Have you ever been to a sporting event where you go to cheer for your team? And there are people in the crowd, though, that are there cheering for your team, but there are also lots of people cheering for the other team. And maybe you've had this experience. You know, you, you go and you sit down and these people that are sitting around you that are cheering for your team, they're wearing your team's colors. You know what happens a little bit into the game if things start going well? Suddenly these people that you've never met before, they're like your best friends. You're high-fiving them and you're suddenly carrying on conversation with them. You'd give them anything at that point. You have this incredible sense of generosity. But the people that are there, maybe just a couple people over that are wearing the colors of the other team, you think you'd be generous to them? No way. You're not high-fiving them. You're not carrying on conversations. You wouldn't give them anything because they're wearing the colors of the other team. Now, I know that's absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? Kind of stupid to even think about. But you know what? There are some internal judgments and prejudices within all of us that are just as ridiculous, but they're awfully sad at the same time. Because oftentimes our willingness to to decide whether or not we're going to be generous is based on internal judgments that we make about whether people are worthy or unworthy of our generosity. But generosity isn't about what's fair. Generosity, that wouldn't be generosity. If we're making internal judgments deciding, well, they're not worthy of my generosity. We occasionally, in fact, quite a bit, get phone calls at the office, people asking for financial help for a lot of different things. And unfortunately, we don't have the resources to help many of them. They're asking for things that are beyond our ability financially to help them. But a couple of weeks ago, actually, while I was working on the first message in this series, which probably impacts a little bit what I did, um, I got a phone call from a young lady whose story was that her mother in Georgia had passed away. And because they didn't have a job, she or her boyfriend, they didn't have the money for gas to get up there. Could we help them with some gas? And, and I thought to myself, a lot of things flashed to my mind, might flash to your mind as well. You know, part of me was like, can I really believe her story? Is she making this whole thing up? You know, why, why don't they have jobs? They really don't have jobs? Are they just being lazy? You know, all those things can flash to your mind. And basically, it was the question of, are they worthy or unworthy of my generosity? But you know what I did in that circumstance? I responded with generosity because I realized it didn't matter whether the story was true or not. It didn't matter what the reason was for their circumstances. That was something that was within our capacity to help with. And so we responded with generosity. We helped them with a tank of gas. A little thing. 
but big to them. Because generosity isn't about whether it was fair or not. And whether they were telling the truth or not really doesn't matter, does it? What mattered was whether or not I was willing to respond in generosity. You know what? God has poured grace into our lives. And I can tell you this morning for me, unequivocally, I do not deserve God's grace in my life. I don't deserve it. And yet that has never stopped Him from pouring out His grace on my life. It's not about what's fair. And if God has poured His grace into my life, even when I didn't deserve it, isn't it just appropriate that I would respond with generosity and grace in the lives of other people? without making some kind of personal judgment about whether or not it's fair or they're worthy, that wouldn't be generosity. One more thing that I realize in this story is that generosity brings great joy. Generosity brings great joy. Three years ago, or about three years ago, when our oldest son Michael was uh, diagnosed with cancer, we decided before he started undergoing his treatment that we were going to take a trip away uh, to Orlando just to get out of town, have some fun before we started in what we knew would be kind of the yucky stuff associated with it. And so we planned this trip and, uh, you know, made plans and told everybody we were going to be gone. And uh, before we left on that trip, somebody from the staff handed us an envelope and said, don't open this until you get out of town. And we followed what they said to the letter of the law. We waited until we were just across the city limits, you know, and we opened the envelope. And inside there was a wonderful card and a whole bunch of money. Money that the staff had collected and probably money that came from a lot of you. And you know what that generous gift did? It brought incredible joy to our family in that moment. And you know what I'm guessing also happened? For those who gave like that, it brought joy to them as well. Because that's what happens when generosity is a part of our lives. It brings joy to both the receiver and to the giver. Now, I might be stretching the text a little bit, but look at what happens in verse 26. It says here that when David arrived in Ziklag, after he was home, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah who were his friends, saying, here's a present for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. David was generous. And here's maybe where I'm stretching the text, but here's what I think happened. I think that David, when he was generous the first time, when he was generous with his guys, he said to he, he experienced the joy of that. And when he got home, he thought, you know what, I want to do that again. And so he gave presents to his friends. And again, experienced the joy of generosity. There is great joy in being generous. There's a clip in this movie, The Robin Hood Gang, that I want you to watch in a second. It's the story of a couple of boys, young boys who happen across a bunch of money And they decide they're going to take this money and they're going to use it to be generous towards others. Watch what happens. Here's some stuff that will help you reach your goal. 
Do you see the sense of joy that's just pervasive in that? Joy for both the giver and the receiver. But you know what happens when we're stingy? When we hold tightly to our stuff and say, mine, mine, mine. We rob ourselves of the opportunity to experience joy and we rob other people of the opportunity to experience joy. We rob ourselves of being able to really take hold of life, a joy-filled life that God desires for each of us. Do you remember last week what Proverbs 11.24 says? It says the world of the generous gets larger and larger and the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. Do you know what happened to David after his generosity? His world got bigger. Because not long after this, David became king over Israel and his world grew and grew. But there was also a point in David's life where he seemed to lose sight of the importance of generosity to the point where he took something that wasn't even his. And do you know what happened after that? His world got smaller and smaller. Is your world growing larger or getting smaller? If we'll practice generosity, extreme generosity in our lives, our world can grow larger. And here's my challenge. That as a church and that as people, we would practice extreme generosity in our lives so that our influence and our impact in the community grows and grows and grows and brings honor to God. God, I thank You that You've been so generous in our lives. Would You help us, God, to practice extreme generosity towards others? Father, in the way that You have blessed our lives with Your grace, would You help us to bless others? Father, thank You for the promises that You've given and what happens in our lives when we're generous towards others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.